Deuteronomy 3.23. Moses says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time. O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. O what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah. And lift up your eyes to the west and the north and the south and the east. And see it with your eyes. For you shall not cross over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go across at the head of this people. And he will give them as an inheritance the land which you will see. God, I ask this morning that you would give us vision. And revelation by your spirit and through your word. Help us, Father, to, to walk out of here with, with a hope of the future. With a sense of the good things to come. With an awareness, Father, that you have a plan that is being worked out, even as we meet this morning. That you are doing things in this world, even as bombs fall across the Middle East. God, that you are King. We pray that we would have vision of this. I pray, Father, that we would have vision in our lives to be able to see where you're taking us. Oh, maybe not weeks, months, years ahead, but at least to see a day at a time. Vision, Father, that is given by your Spirit to our hearts. And vision, Lord, that is not drummed up in emotion, but is real, it's authentic. It is by your Spirit. I pray that this fellowship, Father, would be a fellowship with vision. That you would show us where we're headed, what we are to do, what we're to be about. And that we wouldn't rest on our own thoughts and ideas. We wouldn't be led by the mind of man, but Father, by your Holy Spirit. I pray this before. I pray it again. Give the Bridge Christian Fellowship your vision. And may we know it and follow and trust in you and all that you're doing. And Father, this morning as you open our eyes to your word, I pray also, Lord, that you would open our ears. That everyone with ears would hear what the Spirit says to this fellowship today. Speak to us your word, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a funny uh, cartoon that's tacked on my refrigerator. Cheryl just put it there just this last week. And it's a picture of a, of a couple of people standing on a street corner and another man walking by. And he's kind of a crazy, haggardly looking man. He's got really long hair and a long beard and mustache. He's carrying a sign that says, the end is near. And one person saying to the other one, that's not as funny as it used to be. <laughs> We're living in a world where, as we've talked about quite a bit recently, you kind of wonder, is the end near? Are we close to that time when God will say, as he said to Moses, enough. Time's up. I'm through. And now I've got something else. Now I don't say that to freak you out or to worry you or to concern you. But I invite you this morning to have vision. To see beyond the boundaries of this world. To maybe understand God in a way you haven't. And even if you have understood God and His love and His grace for you in your life. To be able to see beyond today and know that He has something in store. Know that He loves you and has prepared you for more 
than where you are right now. Do you realize that? That God has more for you than what you have right now. And I'm not necessarily talking about possessions, although that may be the case. That's up to the Lord. But He has more for you than what you have right now in your life today. And you may be sitting here, and I I doubt there are many of you out there, but there may be a few sitting here going, I've got everything I ever wanted and life is perfect. It's just great. I don't need anything else. And if you're in that place, guess what? God has more for you than He does today. He has more. He has more for every single one of us. And if you happen to be one of those people who are sitting there going, man, my life just isn't where I want it to be. I can't seem to get there. The Lord would have you know this morning that there's more. He has better for you. He has a vision and He wants us to catch that vision. Moses wanted to have a vision. And the passage that we read this morning is all about Moses one more time going back before God saying, please, at least let me see the land. I understand I sinned. I understand that there are some problems back in in my past with you and my history, and I'm not supposed to go into the promised land. But please, Lord, you're just now starting to do some really cool things. I've seen you wipe out armies before the children of Israel, unbelievably, miraculously, supernaturally. And now, now, Lord, I want to see more. And the Lord says to Moses, what a lot of us parents say to our kids, enough. Speak to me no more of this matter. Go to your room, Moses. Back in Numbers chapter 20, at a place called Meribah, Moses messed it up. He misrepresented God before the people. He wasn't speaking from divine revelation. No, Moses was speaking from dumb frustration. Let me go back and read real quickly to you. Numbers chapter 20, in verse 8, the story goes, and it's background to this story, God says to Moses, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. And so Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. Now at this point in the narrative and what God is telling Moses, he has said nothing about condemning the people. He has said nothing about getting on the people. He has not even referred to or mentioned the people's faithlessness. He just says, Moses, go before the rock and speak to it, that it may yield fresh water. So what does Moses do? He took the rod from before the Lord, as he was commanded. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels! And you may remember when we studied this a few weeks back, several weeks back now, that that word rebels, in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, that's the Greek version, is moros. It's where we get our word moron. And that's what Moses is saying to the people. You morons. You rebels. You idiots. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And he took up that rod and he struck the rock twice with the rod. And he sinned before the Lord. Because you see, he misrepresented the nature and the character of God. God was giving grace. God was saying, I want the people to have... And you know what? By the way, not only was God saying, I want the people to have fresh water, He was saying, I want to draw a picture here. Speak to the rock. Speak to the rock and water will flow. What is it that we do as Christians today? We speak to the rock and living waters flow. It was a prophetic picture that God was setting up way back then, but Moses blew it by striking the rock. And I do wonder at times if we don't strike the rock, strike Jesus, rather than just speak to Him that living waters would flow, when we lash out, Lord, I don't understand you. I don't know what you're doing here. Or maybe when we lash out at other people, we strike that rock. Well, Moses, Moses doesn't speak grace. 
Instead, he struck condemnation. And because he did that, now back over in Deuteronomy 3, we find the Lord saying, you cannot go into the land. And even when Moses says, please, let me just go in and see it, just for a moment, God says, no, enough. Because Moses misrepresented God, he can't go in. But there's another reason Moses can't go into the the land. Not only did he misrepresent God, Moses represents the law. And the law can never take you into the land. The Bible tells us in several places that Moses is the picture of the law. He's the representation of the law. And the law can't get you through. Only a different person, as you look down in verse 28, could do that. Joshua. In the Hebrew, Yehoshua. In the Greek, Jesus. In English, Jesus. For Joshua is the Old Testament picture of the New Testament, Jesus. And only Joshua would be able to lead the people into the land. As John says in John chapter 1, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. But here's Moses in this picture. He wants to see the land. He wants vision. He wants to see more than what he's seen. He's excited about what he's seen. What he's seen is good. They're right up to the border. God has done wondrous things. Moses wants to see more. And God says, enough. This conversation is over, Moses, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you see the land in a different way. Go on up to the top of Mount Pisgah. And up on the top of that mountain, I'm going to let you see the land. And it's on the top of Mount Pisgah that Moses gets literally a supernatural vision. I've mentioned this vision before. I want you to see it this morning. That Moses didn't just go up to the top of the mountain and kind of get in the lay of the land and then die. Flip in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy 34. Now this morning, I want to go through several mountain ranges with you. Look at several mountains in Scripture. Mountains of vision. Places where we can go to see better what the Lord is doing and what He may have for us. And the first mountain, if you're taking notes, the first mountain is Mount Pisgah. P-I-S-G-A-H, Mount Pisgah, which is the mountain of vision. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 34 verse 1 tells us, So Moses went up from the plains of Moab to to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. Now watch. Gilead as far as Dan and all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea and the Negev and the plain in the valley of Jericho the city of palm trees as far as Zoar and then the Lord said to him this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob saying I will give it to your descendants I have let you see it with your eyes but you shall not go over there what's supernatural about that? What's supernatural about it is Moses couldn't have seen all of that from the top of Mount Pisgah. Now he could see a lot of the land, but he could not see all of the land. Even in the description here, that he saw Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh in the land of Judah, all those parcels of land that had yet to be even parceled out to the people. People weren't in the promised land, they weren't in those places yet. But Moses saw where all of those places would be. The full expanse of Israel, from the tip of northern Israel to the tip of southern Israel, Moses saw it all in this amazing vision, this mountain of vision. God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that for Moses. He didn't have to give him that vision, that incredible encouragement that Moses at this point needed. 
just to know after 80 years of his life, 120 years of his life, that his life had been worth something. That his life had actually mattered. I mean, you know, the first 40 years he was in Egypt, and then he murders a guy, and so for 40 years he flees out, and he's in Midian, a shepherd, hanging out with the sheep, smelling like sheep, being with sheep, eating with the sheep. And then, somehow God calls him. Why would he call him? Moses didn't know. Back to Egypt to lead the people out. For 40 years he led them across that wilderness, across that desert, crying, whining, whimpering, children of Israel. And finally they get to the border, and Moses, because of the sin at Meribah, cannot go in. And at that point, if I were Moses, I'd go, man, I don't even know if it was worth it. I don't even know if the land is worth it. Moses had never been there. God didn't have to let him see it. But he did. Because God is a gracious God. And that moment, before Moses died up on that mountain, must have been incredibly encouraging for this servant of God to look out with his own eyes and see and to know that's where they're going. It's there for them. Could you personally use an encouraging vision today? As I started out with, could you just use a word of knowing that what's happening in your life today is not going to be par for the course? That the Lord actually does have more for you? That He has a vision for you He wants you to catch? Proverbs 29.18 tells us where there is no vision, the people perish. Now that word perish in the Hebrew is para. It literally means naked, exposed, or undone. Without vision, the people are exposed. They're undone. And maybe you felt that way. Maybe the events of your life, recent or past, have left you just feeling exposed. That's the worst. It's the worst when you sin in front of friends. Isn't that terrible? Or in front of family members and they see you for who you are. Especially when you sin in front of friends that you've really held it all together for a long time in front of them and then all of a sudden a word shoots out of your mouth or an action or a behavior and they realize what you hoped that they would never figure out. You're a sinner. You had it going so well for so long but you blew it and now they know and now it's never going to be the same. And let me tell you something. You want to know how to get from it's never going to be in the same in this relationship to a better relationship? Confess your sin. It can be better than the same. The same is just smokescreen, gang. We're all sinners here. We've all made mistakes. We've all blown it. We have all been exposed in one way or another. And if you think you haven't been exposed, you're, you're just putting up smoke screens. You're, you're, you're kind of protecting yourself. You're clothing yourself with, with basically a big lie that you're clean and perfect and righteous. And none of us are. We all mess it up. And that's such good news. Because that means the next time I blow it, you all won't go, Pastor Rick, sin. Yeah. And so will you. Maybe my behavior has just left me undone. And maybe I fear that if my sin is really known, I'm just going to fall apart. Oh no, what if the whole body finds out about my particular sin? What if they do? We need vision, gang. For lack of vision, people perish. We need to be able to see beyond our sin and our failures of today, of yesterday, of two, three weeks ago. By the way, let me just say this as a side note. You Christians who are holding the sins of others against them, let them go. It's called forgiveness, and it is foundational in everything that we are about. Jesus didn't from the cross say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do as long as they confess and repent and come back and do the same for me. He said, Father, forgive them. Period. 
No condition. Is that possible for us to act that way? Again, that was a little side note. I didn't have that in my notes. But Mount Pisgah, get back there. Mount Pisgah is the mountain of vision. It's that place where the Lord's inviting you to climb this morning. The place of vision. The place of being able to stand out and look out over the broad plain and to see all of what the Lord has before you to know that there is hope for the future. And vision is exactly what we need. Now, Pisgah is an interesting word. It means cleft. Cleft. Which reminds me of another mountain, actually a mountain that Moses had gone to before, Mount Sinai. That's the second mountain to think about this morning, and that is the mountain of glory. Mount Sinai, the mountain of glory, Exodus 33.20, tells us the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. Literally the trailing off of my glory. You can check that out, Moses. But my face shall not be seen. Mount Sinai, the mountain of glory. Now let me tell you what's wonderful about this. Moses wanted to see God. And God said, look, if you see me, you're dead. You can't handle it. But I'll let you see my glory. Moses made a request and God responded. In the same way with Mount Pisgah, Moses said, let me see, let me see the land. Give me vision. And God said, okay, I'm going to let you see the land. You just can't go in. The Bible tells us this, one of the most wonderful verses. You have it underlined, highlighted, circled. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Wow. Really? We were praying this morning before we started and and just kind of a thought hit me. It is unbelievable that God is right here this morning. Because he happens to be in any number of churches all across the Skagit Valley, all across Island County. He's everywhere. Do you know he's even outside of Washington State? (laughs) Amazing. He is across the nation, across the world. He's everywhere all at once, mind-blowing, almost incomprehensible. And then James comes out and says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Sometimes we think in our lives, oh, God just doesn't have time for me. I'm insignificant. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just a little peon in the world. I don't really even... God doesn't have any use with me. Draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. Moses desired to see Him. Wanted to be close to Him. And he said, alright, okay little man, you can't handle seeing me, but I'm going to draw near anyway. I'm going to cover you with my own hand. Protect you against even my glory. And then I'll let you see a little bit. But listen, these two mountains, Mount Pisgah, Mount Sinai, the Mount of Vision, the Mountain of Glory, be careful, because these mountains can also be dangerous. But there's a third mountain you need to go to. Another mountain in the Bible where another vision was offered, where glory was offered. Vision, glory, both things that we want. Both can be great things, but both can be dangerous as we desire them. For the third mountain is Mount Temptation. The mountain of seduction. Matthew chapter 4 verse 8. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now compared to Moses' experience on Mount Pisgah, this seemingly greater supernatural vision of all the kingdoms of the world is what Jesus saw. 
God shows Moses from Pisgah just Israel. Satan took Jesus up to a big mountain and said, check it out. All the kingdoms of the world. And somehow, somehow, Jesus, as he stood there with Satan, was able to see all the kingdoms of the entire world. Supernaturally, wonderfully, it was seductive. It was not a mountain of vision. It was not a mountain of glory. And you may ask in your life, well, how do I know? How do I know which is which? When I want vision from the Lord for my life, how do I know it's a vision from God? How do I know it's not me in my own little head? How do I know it's not Satan trying to lead me down a road, giving me a vision that's a wrong vision, that's inaccurate, that's not actually from God? A mountainous question for you to ask. When you're considering vision, ask, is the vision God is giving me a shortcut? Is it a shortcut? If God's showing you something in your life that you believe He wants you to do, is it just a shortcut that makes it easier? A few weeks back, when we looked at these temptations of Jesus, do you recall what the true temptation here was for Jesus as He stood on that mountain? Satan was offering Jesus what God had already promised Jesus He would receive, all the kingdoms of the world. And those kingdoms were Satan's to offer. And as he stood up there on the mountain with Jesus and said, Look, all these kingdoms, they can be yours. Jesus is thinking, Well, yeah, I know they can be mine. Psalm 2 tells me that God is going to give me all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, Yeah, but you don't have to do it God's way. Because God's way is the long way. God's way leads you around to a difficult place. My way is easy. Bow down and the kingdoms are yours right now. And had Jesus done that, had he accepted that... Well, it would have been a tremendous, tremendous loss because not a single soul of mankind could have been saved. A shortcut. Jesus said to Satan, Go, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Satan's way would have been an easier path, but in terms of, the, of, of souls, it would have been an inestimable loss. Besides, there were more mountains to climb. And the next mountain, for Jesus, would parallel Jesus' answer to Satan on this mountain. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And so later in Jesus' life, He ends up on a mountain called Mount Hermon, I believe. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. We climb from one mountain to the next this morning. I'm going to say Mount Hermon. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that directly, and there are different ideas. In fact, if you go to the country of Israel, they'll, they'll call a certain mountain the mountain of Jesus' temptation. I don't think it's the one. won't get into that today. But Mount Hermon, one of the largest mountains in Israel, is known also as the Mountain of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 1. tells us six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. I love that, because Moses did get into the promised land. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, and if you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What did Jesus say on the mountain of uh, temptation? What did he say? Worship the Lord and serve him only. But here he is now on the mountain of transfiguration. He's transfigured. He's in this glorified state. And as Peter wants to worship all three, God says, you listen to Jesus. 
Now the worship is toward Jesus. It is for Jesus. And when the disciples heard this, verse 6, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself. Oh Lord, may we see no one except Jesus himself. In our worship, in our fellowship, in the way we live our lives, may we see no one except Jesus himself. Not one of your elders, not Pastor Rick or Pastor Les. May we see no one but Jesus himself. How do we know, again, if a vision is from God? A second question to ask, not just does the vision give you a shortcut, but is the vision an elevation of Jesus? God's trying to tell you to do something or lead you a certain way. Does that direction elevate Jesus in your lives? Well, that's one way you can know a vision is from God. There are many visions that have been given in the history of the world. Many false visions have been given and received by thousands, if not millions of people. When I think about Mormonism today, it is all based on continuing revelation and visions that people receive. But those visions, did they elevate Jesus? Or did they diminish Jesus? I'll let you research that for yourselves. But the question is, does it elevate Jesus? John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you heard is coming and now is already in the world. He says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world and a vision for your life that your life could be better tomorrow than today must elevate and include Jesus Christ if it doesn't it's not a vision from the Lord you're thinking I want my life to be better but I don't want Jesus involved guess what that's not from God he has a vision for you and that vision glorifies Jesus There's so many attempts to diminish Jesus, to make him lower than he was, to focus on his humanity. And granted, he was completely human. He even chose to set aside his glory, and he chose the designation Son of Man. But the last time, and don't miss this, the last time we see Jesus in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, he is glorified. And the Jesus that we worship today is not a simple human being. And the Jesus we worship today, we talk about this around Christmas time, is not a little baby. The Jesus we worship today is God incarnate in His full glory. This is His person, His character, His nature today. Fully glorified. That is the Jesus that we worship. No less. Now the glory of Mount Hermon was only a preview of coming attractions. And the boys looked up at Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They looked up and they saw as the glory and the vision kind of faded down, there was nothing but Jesus. So Satan tried to tempt him on the Mount of Temptation, and Jesus showed some of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But there's another mountain that Jesus had to go to. Number four in your notes, if you're taking notes, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, which is the mountain of redemption. Now Mount Moriah is a mountain, it's a ridge really more than a mountain that cuts through the center of Jerusalem. It's at the northern end of the old city that it reaches a peak. Mount Moriah cuts through the ridge and reaches a peak on the north end, the highest point of Mount Moriah. And that peak is a location formerly called Golgotha. 
And you know what happened there. John 19.17 tells us they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two other men and on either side Jesus was in between. Now here's an interesting thought. For looking back we know exactly what was going on. But in that moment of Jesus' crucifixion his followers did not. They had no clue what was happening. They stood at a distance watching their Lord, their rabbi, get crucified and they couldn't put it together. It didn't make sense. Even though Jesus told them it was coming, described exactly what would happen, John 19.26 tells us that standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the other disciple, Behold your mother. I tell you this verse because we know that there are at least four four or five followers of Jesus that were right there at the cross. We know specifically the three Marys were there. And a woman named Salome and John were there on the mountain, but they did not understand on that mountain that it was a mountain of redemption. They couldn't get it. They stood and they watched in awe and in terror. Now they could, if they had been paying attention, they could have known what was going on. Another mountainous question about vision in our lives. Does the sacrifice redeem others? Is my vision about redemption? Now stay with me here. Does the vision God has given me for my life make a difference in the life of somebody else? Does it save somebody else? I think about, we've talked about recently the wives of Jim Elliott and Nate Saints and the others who, who realized, back in the 50s, those missionaries who were killed, who realized that their sacrifice was about redemption and the wives went back in and continued that mission. That mission. They had a vision. And their families must have thought they were nuts, crazy, for going back to where their husbands had been killed. But they had a vision. And that vision was about redemption. Now wait. We're not quite done. There's one more mountain. And it's the real mountain I wanted you to see this morning. You might ask, okay, Rick, why are we doing this? Why are you taking us through all these mountains this morning? The same reason that Lord, the Lord took Moses to Mount Pisgah. The same reason. We're going across these mountain ranges to understand something that we can live as people who have vision, who can see beyond ourselves. The fifth mountain is Mount Olivet, the mountain of ascension. Mount Olivet. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. It says, After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way just as you have watched him go into heaven. And it tells us that they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the mountain of ascension. The gang, the disciples gathered there as they watched Jesus ascend were given a fantastic vision. And that vision was not the ascension of Jesus Christ. That vision was the return of Jesus Christ. For the angel said, what are you looking at? He's gone. But he's going to come back the same way that he went. He will set foot here on this mountain again. Turning your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. 
for Mount Olivet is not just the Mount of Ascension, it's the Mount of Return. And listen carefully to that. I have one last thing to share with you. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, verse 4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So half of the mountain will move toward the south, and the other half will move toward the north. You, in speaking to the Jewish people, will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. And you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, (laughs) and all the holy ones with him Verse 6, In that day there will be no night, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. It will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. Now close your Bible a second and just give me your attention. I want you to think about something. Last Sunday morning, we did a prophecy update. And we were looking at the current stuff going on in the Middle East, what's happening between Lebanon and Israel and Hezbollah and Hamas and all the fighting that's going on and the conflict. And we kind of looked over a little bit of Israel's history and their conflict throughout the ages. And we came down to the end of that study, that message, and I made some application. It was so hot in here. It's a little hot in here this morning in spite of the rain. But it was hot and, and... I just I felt like okay, I need to end this thing. So kind of ended up, and and I got home last Sunday afternoon, and it had been a great day, and we had a couple of people be baptized, and that was wonderful. But personally, I was just a little deflated. I walked in the door, and and I told Cheryl, I'm, I'm disappointed in in the teaching this morning. I'm just disappointed in what came up. She's like, you're so hard on yourself, knock that off. I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm not talking about disappointed in, in my ability. I'm disappointed because I left out the best part. I left out the wonder. I left out the future. We're talking about all of Israel's conflicts and their problems and where they are in the world and why they are where they are right now, but never got to the best part. And I was a little discouraged. In fact, I almost did a whole new prophecy update this week to to kind of cover that. But I want to read you the best part. And it's important that you hear this, so listen closely. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30, the Lord, speaking through Moses, says, When you're in distress, and all these things have come upon you, all these conflicts, all these problems, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which He swore to them. Israel has been given a great vision. A vision for the future, not just for the past. A vision for what God is going to do, not just what He used to do. 
a great vision. And Isaiah bears that up even greater. Isaiah 65, 17. The Lord says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. And that's the prophecy update. For that's what Israel has to look forward to. A new heaven and a new earth. A brand new creation. Those of you students of Revelation who have been in the last couple of studies, you know that's exactly where everything's headed. Revelation 21 and 22. And we'll finish 22 tonight. Talking about that amazing, brand new creation of God. Something out of nothing. Something that doesn't even exist right now. That He will create and make new. And it's absolutely wonderful. And that's where I wanted to end last week. But you know what happened? What happened last week is exactly what happens to us on almost a daily basis. When it heats up, we forget about the vision we've been given. When it gets hot and uncomfortable and difficult, we forget about where we're going. We forget about the good news to come and we tend to focus in on the conflict and the difficulty and the struggles and the troubles of life. We forget that we have a glorious future with the Lord. I don't know if you caught it, but in Zechariah 14 verse 5 it says, The Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. This is an amazing teaching. For it's at that time after a seven year tribulation here on earth when the Lord returns in His glorious appearing and all the holy ones come with Him and those holy ones, gang, are not angels, they're saints. They're the raptured church returning with Jesus able to experience the wonder of His glory overwhelmed by it. And as we've gone through the last couple of chapters of Revelation it is just so amazing, it is so encouraging and it doesn't matter how bad your day or week or month has been you go into Revelation 21 and read that bad boy and it blows your mind. It's wonderful. There's no way you can walk out of reading about what God's going to do and go, oh, my life is just so hard. Who cares if my life is hard? This is what's coming. i got a vision for the future. It's not just standing on Mount Pisgah and looking at a, at a little country. It's looking out at the future that God has planned, and it is eternal. And Peter calls it a living hope. A living hope. It's a vision that pulls us up out of ourselves and out of the, the struggle of today. Maybe you're working long hours. Bummer. But that's today. That is not tomorrow. Maybe you're having trouble making ends meet. I'm sorry, but that is just today. That is not tomorrow. Maybe you're in the middle of some difficulty in a relationship. Well, I'll tell you what. Love the person in that relationship because tomorrow you're going to be with them for eternity. And that is good news. And that's what we're called to. And that's why we meet together and we worship together and we pray together. It's not so life can be better here. I'm going to share one more thing. And I know there will probably be someone who would disagree with me on this. I am not among those who are praying for revival in this world. Again, some may go, all right? We better look for another pastor. I am not among those who is real excited that we have some big massive revival. The revival I want to see is when Jesus comes. Now I want to see people saved, don't get me wrong, but revival, this, this concept of revival in the church, and I've been doing a lot of reading on this recently, it is so about us. It's so much about how we feel, what we're going through, 
what it does to me. And that's not why we're here, gang. If there's any revival that I would pray for, it's a revival of lost souls that they might know Jesus Christ and become part of a fellowship where they can get loved and get the same vision that we have that He's coming for us. That's what I'm praying for. His coming. His return. I don't know that a day has gone by in the last probably three and a half, four years since the first time I taught Revelation. You remember that, Sharon? I don't think a day has gone by that I haven't said at least once, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Because that's what I'm looking forward to. That is what He's promised. And we try so hard to get a handle on it today. We are limited by the flesh, and guess what? We are always going to be limited by the flesh. And so we're out of the flesh. And if you're among those who get frustrated from time to time, you can't get to the next place. It's this stuff. It's horses walking in in the middle of worship. You know, it's spiders crawling up and getting on your face when you're trying to lead a song. It's, it's the flesh. And it keeps things to a degree subdued so that we cannot experience the kind of real revival that we will experience around the throne in heaven. That's the one I want to be a part of. That's what I'm praying for. And that's vision game. John said, 1 John 5.13, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, listen, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope that maybe someday if you're just good enough, that's not it. John wrote about Jesus that we might know. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. But there's more. He says, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Who's that? Boy, I hope it's me. To be among those who never even taste death. Because he comes while we happen to be still living. I am longing for that day. Jesus says, Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? That's the vision day. And for all these mountains, guess what? They're all behind us. There is one mountain ahead of us. Mount Olivet, the mountain of return. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. And that's the vision he's giving us. Let's walk in that. Let's share that vision. And let's love people like there's no tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we live as is spoken in the Hebrew in the Yom Akarim in the last days. May we live in these last days with a living hope of our future joy in Christ Jesus and a living passion for those who are lost. Keep us single-minded in this purpose, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.